grad scientists and where to find them. Seriously misunderstood creatures. You know, I'm something of a scientist myself. Hello, 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 and welcome to Grad Scientists and Where to Find Them. Still going strong, talking about research and uh, graduate students. Tonight, I welcome uh, Malosri. Malosri, welcome. Hi. Can you tell us a bit uh, about yourself? Uh? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm Malosri. I'm a student in the integrated program in neuroscience at McGill. I work at the Douglas Hospital in Verdun, and my lab looks at uh, depression and the brain. Awesome. And then I have uh, Tal. Welcome, Tal. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself? Sure, of course I can. Uh, so I'm Tal. I'm also in uh, the McGill Neuroscience Program, and I work at the main uh, Royal Victoria Hospital, which is on the, the highway to the, um, to the airport, which you might have seen. Um, yeah, that's... That's me. <laughs> well, that's great. So uh, I'm uh, Mal Mochon, and uh, so that's great. It's going to be a special neuroscience because uh, if you have listened to previous podcasts, you would know that I am in neuroscience as well. So why don't we start with Tal? Do you want to tell us a bit more about uh, your research? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so I work on energy. Um, we humans get our power for foods, we digest it and process it, and then in turns we, we make ATP. Um, and I specifically work on how the brain is aware of how much energy we have and in turns how much we need. So specifically, I'm working on an area of the brain that's called the hypothalamus and really acts as this communication gateway between the brain's electrical nervous system and the body's hormonal peripheral system. And specifically there, I'm working on neurons that detect kind of hormones that are released by, by the fat, um, which act as our, our energy bank, basically. That's where we store every surplus of energy that we have. Um, and how those neurons detect what our current energy reserves are, what's our current energy status, and then turns, turns that into feeding behavior. Yeah, so it's a, it's a really interesting field. Um, I think a lot of the time it's really underappreciated or people don't necessarily think about it, but it's really this building block of, of biological life. Because if you're not able to, to first have that energy yep, that you yep, need... For sure. You can't talk, you can't reproduce. For, for us humans, we, we wouldn't be able to think. So, so it's really this primordial aspect of life, which is just absolutely essential. Eating, um, eating is, is life, for sure. Yeah, eating is life. <laughs> I mean, I'd argue it's probably more important than, than reproduction. And yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some people I mean, would agree. <laughs> well, at least it's, it's, let's say, downstream of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they're both important for sure. Yeah, I mean, in terms of of evolution, people seem to like kind of think about you know growth of intellect and all other kind of aspects that have allowed us to become more complex. But I would never be able to to happen if we didn't first put in place mechanisms which would allow us to become more energy optimized. Yeah. So how do you how do you examine all that? Do you just like look at Right. humans and how they eat 
No, I mean, we work on, on animals, uh, specifically mice. Uh, I wish we were working on humans, <laughs> but I don't think the work that we first. would do yeah. would be quite ethical on humans. It's a lot of behavioral work, not quite what other people do. It's not like we're not putting mice on like tea maze or like analyzing a water maze, like to analyze their memory or, or um, anxiousness. It's really more feeding behavior. Um, so we put them in those metabolic chambers, um, which is just a cage in which they're individually housed. Um, and there we just record how much they eat, how much they drink, how much they, they run around, um, the oxygen consumption, the CO2 they release, and in turns we're able to, to kind of build a picture of how much um, energy they're taking in and how much energy they're taking out. Um, and then we can manipulate neurons, which are we believe are involved somehow, um, and see how, how this is all affected. So in, in a way, so looking at their behavior and then looking how the neurons respond or modifying the neurons to see how the behavior changes. Yeah, we're doing both. Both of them, okay. Yeah, I'm personally working on certain neurons that would seem to be involved specifically in kind of initiating food intake and then terminating it. And that's, to, to my eyes, it's really important in terms of a evolutionary advantage to be able to It, it takes energy to get energy. Um, yeah. So you don't want to take either less, otherwise you'd be constrained, or you don't want to take too much because then you're depriving yourself of doing other things. So those, that population of neurons seems to be really essential in, in guiding this, this optimization of how much energy yeah. you, you need to take in. Uh, yeah. Would there be links like that to like... Uh known pathologies right now so like bee yeah, eating and correct so i mean it's, it really has huge implications as you would probably imagine because it's such an important behavior and the one that would be associated the most would be obesity mm -hmm. and a lot of the time people seem to think of obesity as kind of psychological weakness you know like oh well i mean he's fat because yeah. yeah i mean he just he just can't stop eating or he's just like food lover or whatever, but that, that's really not true. Most of eating disorder, whether that's anorexia or, or obesity, is really an imbalance in the way that this communication between the brain and the rest of the body, there's, there's this disconnect and you're not necessarily aware how much energy reserve, what your energy reserves are. You don't know how much you have, so you might be taking more and more and more and you can enter into this loop where the more you take in, the more resistant you become to signals that are telling you that you have enough, the more you take in. It's really a disorder um, and really a neurological one. And on top of that, obviously, obesity has huge health repercussions. I mean, the most obvious one is diabetes, um, but it's also associated with cardiovascular diseases and strokes and Alzheimer mm -hmm. and so many types of cancer. So the societal burden that the dis disorder is is just enormous yeah it's very interesting just because it's true when you when you think of obesity you know, very rarely you would think about what the brain has to do with it right right you think obesity uh well fat <laughs> i guess that's it If yeah so, so much has to do with correct well, i mean there's a huge stigma around it and when you think um when you think about obesity nobody seems to be realizing that 
there's a huge connection between the disorder and and just neuronal circuits that guide feeding behavior and that seem to be really at, at the source of that disease. All right, so uh, thanks, Tal. So, Malasri, do you want to then share about... Uh, share about? Do you say share about? Yeah, share, share. about. Can share you share, you share? Yeah, do you want to share your research? Yeah, sure. Um, so, as I mentioned, uh, my lab studies depression in the brain. We don't just study depression, we study mood disorders, so that also includes bipolar disorder in some cases. And uh, so one of the really interesting things about my lab is that our studies use samples from the Douglas Bell Canada Brain Bank. So this is a very large brain bank of brains donated by individuals who uh, are donated by the families of individuals who had depression and died by suicide. And also individuals who died uh, suddenly in accidents or in a heart attack or other natural causes. Mm. Just, just, we're talking about actual brains, not, not brain data. Like No, no, actual brains. brains yeah. yeah, so actual brains. And uh, so it's a very interesting place. You have all uh, these brains um, that we get from the coroner and they are either frozen or preserved. And we have, I think, uh, several hundred, so maybe like 300 wow. brains. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I think it's a very rare resource that we have mm -hmm. access to. Uh, so the kinds of uh, studies that the lab, lab does are molecular studies. So we look at uh, mostly gene expression and epigenetic changes. It's uh, very powerful in the context of something like depression to be able to look at uh, the human brain because, of course, animal models of various psychiatric disorders do exist and they are used to uh, kind of investigate the circuits behind them or even to test drugs uh, that would be applicable to, th to those disorders. But it's very hard to model or kind of uh, assess some kind of behavioral parameters in animal models, as you can imagine, because yeah, it's it's hard to say if a mouse uh, is exhibiting depression-like behavior or not, or anxiety-like behavior or not. Well, uh, she can't really tell you. Yeah. So... Um, we uh, So we look at these brains and we look at gene expression. A lot of the projects in the lab involve looking at epigenetics, which uh, in particular means that uh, changes in the genetic material that are essentially caused by the environment. And um, in the context of something like depression, this is very important to look at because in many cases we know that stressful life events can uh, trigger psychiatric disorders, such as, for example, in the case of depression, if there is uh, some experience of, say, child abuse early on uh, in life, then it increases the risk for depression. And this can happen, or the hypothesis is that this can happen because of epigenetic changes, uh, such as modification uh, to the DNA in the form of DNA methylation or histone modification, for example. Um, so my project in particular looks at these changes in a cell type specific way. This is important because the human brain is very, very complex and it has very different cell types that have very specific functions, which kind of ties back to what you were just saying. Uh, you know, there are these neurons in the hypothalamus that are specifically looking at uh, the levels of hormones related to uh, feeding. Mm -hmm. So that's just one part of the brain. There's so many parts of the brain and there are uh, so many different cell types. And usually when someone does a gene expression study or an epigenetic study, they look at a piece of brain tissue that is homogenized. Now, that piece of brain tissue has many different types of cells. 
and all of them have different kinds of gene expression and they have different kinds of epigenetic modifications. And when you mix them all together and then you try to compare uh, these people who had depression and these people who didn't have depression and you find some differences, you don't really know what cell type is being affected. And you also don't know whether there's a change in the number of a particular cell type or there's a change in the level of a gene that's expressed in a particular cell type. So uh, we're doing these cell type specific approaches and um, I think the really cool part about my project is that I'm applying something called single cell technologies. In particular, we're doing single nucleus RNA sequencing. And uh, in these methods, what happens is that you uh, measure the gene expression of all the genes, but in theory, all the genes that are expressed in uh, each and every individual nucleus that you isolate from this brain tissue. And that allows you to separate the different cell types because based on the gene expression pattern, you can sort the nuclei into different groups or clusters of cell types. So you can look at excitatory uh, neurons from different layers of the cortex and inhibitory neurons expressing uh, particular markers. And uh, you can compare then the gene expression in each of these particular cell types between the cases and controls. Uh, so that's a large part of what I've been doing. And then eventually the hope is also to look at uh, cell type specific epigenetic changes. Now the thing with epigenetic uh, changes is that you usually require a lot of material to measure them. So it's not possible to do this at a single nucleus level in general, although there are some new techniques that do that. But um, the other challenging thing about working with postmortem tissue is that it's very fragile because there could have been different periods of delay between when the person died and when the brain was preserved and there can be kind of loss of information during that period because the molecules can degrade. Yeah, so we are trying to figure out ways to do cell type specific measurements of epigenetic changes. And I mean, the goal is just to try to understand what's different uh, and why uh, someone is depressed in a molecular sense what's different about their brain or a part of their brain uh, when they're depressed compared to someone who is not. So the, the, the brains you're comparing is brains of people that were that died during conditions where they were actually depressed or, or that had a history of depression? So that's a very good question. Um, in general, uh, I would say that they probably died during an episode of depression because generally that's when people uh, die by suicide, yeah. uh, but also the life history is considered. Uh, so one of the questions that often comes up is you have this person who has already died, so you can't really do a psychiatric assessment. So yeah. how are you going to say whether they were depressed or not? Uh, and so what uh, the brain bank does is there are there's a panel of psychiatrists who look at the entire life history, they look at the medical history, uh, they um, conduct these interviews with the family and friends uh, to ask them about uh, their mental health and their life experiences. And uh, they do something that they call a psychological autopsy. And then if uh, the panel agrees that this person was depressed, then we consider them to be a... Okay. That's yeah. really interesting it, that it all happens post-mortem. Yeah. 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 That's crazy. And and your controls, they're uh, sort of treated the same way. They're also... Yes. So they're assessed, yeah, they're assessed in the same way. And if there's any history of any psychiatric disease, not even just depression, if there's other psychiatric diseases as well, then we don't include them as a control in the study. Yeah. And you, do, you, uh, do you ever... You, uh, sorry, I'm just throwing it out there, but 
because I'm, I'm thinking if you have somebody that has had episodes of depression that they have recovered recovered from, would they would you would you expect them to have something that would be more similar to some of your patient brains or your control brains? So that's a very good question. And I think it would really depend because there are multiple factors. One of them is medication. So were they on any medication that helped them recover? How long ago were they on this medication? What kind of medicine was that? And also like how long ago before their death was this depressive episode? Because some changes might be more long lasting. So in terms of gene expression, if someone has already recovered from a depressive episode, my hypothesis would be that they're brain's gene expression would be more similar to someone who's a control. But then in terms of epigenetic changes, which can last a lot longer, it's uh, entirely possible that there might be some traces of this depressive episode uh, still remaining. But those are all hypotheses. Yeah. <laughs> so, so today, I mean, from what I'm not sure, I mean, that's not necessarily something I've studied extensively. Um, and I think nobody really knows what's the cause of depression, but... Is the hypothesis that it's really more of a of a molecular, but it starts at a molecular level, um, or really that it's more of a circuit issue? I think it turns. It, yeah, I think it's definitely well. It's likely to be a circuit issue because there are fMRI studies, for example, that can uh, kind of differentiate between say responders and non responders to particular treatments mm. uh, in among depressed patients. Uh, so there are definitely patterns that are changed in right. the activity. But then I would say that there's underlying molecular changes because right. we do know that there are these drugs that uh, act on well-characterized molecular targets that help a lot of people with depression, not everybody. There's a substantial proportion of people who don't benefit from them. But uh, given that these drugs are, say, going and targeting these uh, monoaminergic systems and that's helping people uh, to recover, then there must be, or I'm guessing that there must be some kind of molecular basis. Right. Well, thanks for uh, sharing the, all this with us. Let's move on to the next part, uh, which uh, today is going to be a special neuroscience. Uh, as I said before, we're three neuroscience students. I think it's, it will be very interesting because we're all, although we are in the same, the same program, we really don't do the same thing at all. Really, neuroscience is such a broad type of concept. We have animal studies and studies directly on the brain or just imaging studies. It would be nice uh, for for other neuroscientists to know what other neuroscientists are up to, but also to just interested people to know better what, what does it mean to do neuroscience. For um, sure. So maybe maybe just to start, do you, do you want to share a bit what, what's your original background? Like what led you to neuroscience? Because that already could be interesting. It's not going to well, be an interesting story. I not going to be? No. Nope. Yeah, we'll make it an interesting I, story. <laughs> I did my undergrad degree in neuroscience <laughs> okay. and then I applied for a PhD in neuroscience. Well, that's, so that we have the very straightforward, but already in your... Um, that was at Miguel, your neuroscience? No, no, I uh, went for my undergrad uh, to Mount Holyoke College. It's in Massachusetts. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's a bit interesting because I am from India and I did, like, I was born there, I grew up there, I did high school there. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I was starting college, I was, let's say, I was unsure about what I wanted to do, which is not really the case. I just wanted to do too many things. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I started some programs and I left them, I didn't like them and then I thought, oh, neuroscience is very interesting, I want to study neuroscience. But at that point, at least, I couldn't find any undergrad programs that had neuroscience. 
in retrospect, I could have just studied biology and then mm-hmm. gone to neuroscience later, but I really wanted to go for a neuroscience program, which is why mm. I moved. It's a nice transition because that's basically what you did, right? Going from biology to... Yeah, um, I mean, I started in, in more of a biological setting that didn't necessarily have any like neuroscience aspect to it. But I did get exposed to a few courses, primarily through pharmacological classes, which really got me interested into neuroscience. And that was maybe, that was more towards the end of the degree. And that's when I, I realized that's what I wanted to pursue. Although, although I, I primarily found a lab, which interested me. And the professor is both a member of the, um, the experimental medicine program and neuroscience. So initially, I didn't even know if um, I was going to be joining a neuroscience program per se. I knew my work would be in kind of neurometabolic sciences. But but yeah, I mean, that's something I wasn't initially drawn to, but I ended up... Just just falling in it. Yeah, just... And falling in love with it. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, like love and hate. Yeah, isn't that the same case for everyone? Yeah, for my case, I was more doing... Um, I was in cognitive science, so I was doing... Bit of neuroscience, bit of philosophy, bit more of uh, psychology, and then I joined a speech communications lab, which also occurred to be part of the neuroscience program. But uh, for me, I sort of always wanted to be in neuroscience, and right. I and I joined a speech communication lab that was also linked to it, so uh, that allowed me sort of to make the bridge. That's it. So it's nice. We're all uh, we all have a very different background to start with. Um, and I had, I had I had something to like you know start you on and I forgot so that's <laughs> that's great. Um, you wanted to go on a rant. I wanted to oh yeah well that's true but I was thinking no I would, it's, <laughs> that's true I said I said at the beginning I had some uh, some some things to say about uh, I find there's a sort of hierarchy of of neuroscience in which more cellular and molecular neuroscience is sort of a privilege at least at Miguel because it's. Uh, that's how it all started, and uh, all the cognitive, uh, all the cognitive side of neuroscience. That's more looking at human behavior, and that's just how it is, I guess. Like we have like the retreat every year, so from the program, and every year they say it's gonna be nice. Every part of neuroscience is gonna be represented. Everybody's gonna be happy about the talks, and there's never a single talk about cognitive science. It's always very molecular specific. Yeah, I mean, I guess McGill, I mean, the program at least is is mostly oriented towards more cellular and, well, still behavioral, but more more like working on, on animal behavior or it's rarely involves more of the cognitive part. I'm assuming that's really more of a question of how you define neuroscience, yeah. probably. I mean, it's such a wide field. Yeah, I'm assuming it's more of a classification. Yeah, but I guess it's also well to demarcate from psychology. Yeah, that, exactly. Uh, so it's taking a big part of that. So yeah, I mean, I, I guess for for us, maybe we're really more into the biological side. So there's not really other departments we could fall under. While while maybe more cognitive, usually people confuse it with psychology, mm-hmm. which is necessarily true. But um, but people have this tendency to kind of confuse the two together. Mm. I mean, I mean, in your case, you say that, but you are you are also in doing something that can fall on onto other uh, other types of fields. True. Yeah. Um, that that is correct. But I mean, 
specifically me, I also have some issue with it. Like I'm <laughs> in a, a research institute where there's basically no neuroscience happening except for our lab. I'm assuming when people moved, like before we were in the Royal Victoria Hospital that was right next to the MNI. Mm -hmm. So really the two were connected, but then when they closed that down and they said, I mean, we're going to be moving you over there. And that's when really the shifts really appeared. Because right now I can't, all the talks that are happening and like topics I understand absolutely nothing about. Mm -hmm. And if I wanted to go to a, a neuroscience talk, I would either need to come all the way to the MNI or to Douglas, um, which isn't feasible for for just like an afternoon talk. Yeah, yeah. For those who don't know, neuroscience is a program. It's not a department, so we're not we're not in one particular building. We're basically in scattered in different labs from multiple departments or hospitals, and so everybody's kind of everywhere around the city. Well, you are so you are at the Douglas Hospital, which is also pretty far. <laughs> pretty far. It's a very interesting place. Yeah. How do you um, how do you live working there? I like it a lot. Um, it can be a bit creepy, especially <laughs> on the weekends and at night when there's no one there. Uh, it's very isolated. I think it was designed that way because it used to be um, an asylum at one point of time, long okay. ago. One problem I don't face is that there are a lot of relevant talks going on there because there's uh, a lot of people from psychiatry are there as well doing research. And uh, there's huge uh, labs with clinical research going on as well, right. which is not maybe directly relevant to me, but uh, they're still there. And it's interesting because um, the stuff that my lab does is actually more in line with a lot of stuff that is done in the human genetics department. And actually, a lot of students in the lab are from human genetics. So yeah, and one of the funny things is that uh, I've spoken to people in my lab about, you know, going to conferences and things like that. And uh, almost all of them will say, oh, we prefer ASHE, which is like the American Society for Human Genetics Conference, mm. over the Society for Neuroscience Conference. Because <laughs> okay. if you go to SFN, it's so much electrophysiology, which we never do, we can't do that. And uh, whereas if you go to ASHE, then it's all of the stuff that we are working on, it's well represented there. So yeah, it's it's really a question of how you define kind of the boundaries. Yeah. It's true because I'm I'm sort of ranting uh, because I, I like to do that. That's uh, my French side, I guess you could say. But it's true that I think one of the great things of neuroscience is how interdisciplinary it can be. I mean, you can do basically, I mean, every field, eventually you can link to neuroscience. You can do neuroscience uh, with biology, you can do neuroscience with pharmacology, with genetics, uh, with social sciences. I mean, the brain is involved in pretty much every everything exactly. we do. So I mean, the nervous system is really present everywhere. Yeah. Um, so, so I think it's hard to really dissociate. You you can't really take the brain out of the system it's in and and necessarily look at it on its own. So yeah, of course, it's going to be inter interdisciplinary. I guess it's also because it's, since it's so young, it's it's nice to see. Uh, like it's really just blossoming and. Uh, uh, maybe a bit of disordered way. <laughs> it is quite disordered. But there's a lot of interest in it. And that means that there's a lot of money in it. Which yeah, is good cool. for us, yeah. <laughs> We're in the right place, guys. Yeah. Um, and, well, also, I guess uh, diversity in fields also means diversity in careers. Do you already have an idea of what you... I know. I, this <laughs> first episode, this first episode we, 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 com we talked about this, about this is the worst question. I will ask it nonetheless, <laughs> fully conscious of my hypocrisy. Uh, but I don't know. Do you have 
ideas or not, you know, not career path, but like, what do you want? You would like to still work on, on what you're doing right now or, you know, switch to something that's more pure neuroscience. Do you want to go for it? <laughs> sure, I'll try. I mean, to be honest, neuroscience was never something I thought I would pursue in life. You know, mm -hmm. as a kid, I was focused on becoming a space pilot or whatever. Oh. Uh, who knows, that might still happen yeah, someday. I mean, But yeah, I mean, now it's been a couple of years working in research um, and I like it a lot as a student, I'd say. Um, I doubt that's something I'll be pursuing later in life. On the other hand, I have absolutely no idea what else <laughs> I would be doing. Um, but let's say pretty all the doors are open for now, but mm -hmm. academia at this point in life is not necessarily something I'd be interested in. Um, okay. And pursuing. And so all the you say all the doors are open. They're all they're open on your side in the sense you're open for everything, or you think that all all doors um, are open from where? From I think both cases. Um, especially today, there's really a growth in any kind of industry to to get really PhD graduates um, for any kind of work. So um, so I mean I'm open to any position available, and I think more and more people are open to to getting you know. Um, someone that didn't necessarily study the field that they're working on, but is open and motivated to to really learn and perform a job. Because I mean, it's still we're still learning a lot of skills, yeah. which are interesting for for any potential employer. Um, so I think there's really in both ways doors doors are open. Yeah. Ah, so if we have any employers out there listening <laughs> to this podcast, Hi, uh, first I don't know I don't yeah I don't know why you would be listening to the podcast, but thank you anyway. <laughs> And hire Tal and hire all of us. All of us. <laughs> What about you then? Um, so one thing that I'm on the same page with Talas is I don't think I want to become a PI. I don't think I, well, mm -hmm. becoming a PI is a very long shot. Anyway, I don't even <laughs> want to try to become a PI because <laughs> right. uh, that doesn't seem that seems a very stressful career path. It would be ideal if I could get a position as like a research scientist, which you can get at a lot of academic labs, because right. certainly the environment of academic labs is very much more appealing than, say, like a pharmaceutical company or some other kind of company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there's also some very interesting like technology development companies that are around, uh, which are very appealing because you get to develop or work on these technologies that have a wide variety of applications and get to meet these people who are applying the techniques in their labs. And so it's uh, like a lot of exposure. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, I mean, if all else fails, uh, <laughs> I'm going to try to become some kind of a data analysis person because like you said, there are transferable skills that you learn. So yeah. I'm learning to analyze data. If I can go and transfer those skills somewhere else, that's great. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, Mal? Oh, <laughs> me. My career is already traced till the end. <laughs> so, uh, but I, I think, uh, I mean, I've said this before, but I'm more, I'm really into the academic path for now. Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I might, I might crash down, but, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about me, guys. We're here to talk about you. But so far, what I gather is that at least you are, you like neuroscience in the sense Uh, in what you perceive neuroscience as it is. Oula. This is not a sentence. <laughs> you like neuroscience as it is in your in the way you're practicing it, sort of. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, I would encourage anyone to that doesn't necessarily is sure about what they want to do to um, to kind of pursue graduate. You would or you work. wouldn't? I would. You would. I would. I mean, you're learning so much about so many different fields and techniques, and um, so yeah, I think it's extremely enriching. Even if that means you're gonna completely change course after, it's still a really good experience. So no regrets so far. <laughs> no regrets. No regrets yeah. either. Yeah, would, I think grad <laughs> school 10 out of 10 would recommend. and like any research environment is a very good place to be for curious people in general because absolutely you don't even have to try. You learn new things every single day yeah. uh, because you have to. But, <laughs> so yeah. you have to try. I guess whatever uh, whatever your field is in the end. Uh, I don't know where I'm going with this sentence. How I'll edit it out. Well, talking about enriching experiences, I have one thing that I have kept from you, uh, dear listeners, uh, is that there's another thing that links us uh, together, uh, is that we've, uh, all three of us, just passed our candidacy exam. So what is candidacy exam? For those who don't know, it is what makes you go from being a PhD student, so just you know starting your PhD, to actually uh, being officially a candidate to be to have a PhD and basically having the green light to do your project. At least that's how it works in our program. So you you work, you do a lot of literature review, you do some pre-experience and whatever, and then you propose a project to a committee, and if this committee says that sounds like a cool project and you sound like the good person to do it then you can go on for uh, two three four five six, seven and whatever more years two is ambitious <laughs> <laughs> two is very ambitious seven is very uh, <laughs> uh, on top of that i i don't know about you but at least in my case and tal we were originally master students and we used that as a way to fast track fast track from the master's program to the PhD program. Was that your case as well? No, so no. my case was different because I was not a master's student, but I was also not in the traditional PhD track. I was in the rotation program. Oh, yeah. So oh. I did rotations my first year in different labs, and then uh, my second year I picked the lab I wanted to be in, and then I get two years from joining that lab to do my candidacy. So. And all went smoothly. Yeah, I yeah. passed. Yeah, yeah, we're all past. That's great. Um, so what? Uh, so we usually do a sort of game. This is gonna be maybe a bit less of a game, but uh, hopefully still entertaining. Uh, I wanted to do so sort of a checklist of the kind of like top 10 things that will always happen to you at your candidacy exam, and see if that will, <laughs> if that happened to you. Of course, leading to anecdotes because I love anecdotes and of course if you have an idea of like one thing that you think would happen to many people don't hesitate to jump in so I guess first thing that's not even specific to a candidacy exam it can be to well it's an today's precise it's an oral exam just in case it's an oral exam that you have to present <laughs> you have to talk for 30 minutes and then your committee asks you question for one hour if the nice two hours if you're bad basically. and they never stop if you're exactly. really bad <laughs> Well, let's start with that. So the never-ending stream of questions. So have you? Do you have? Have you had this one particular examiner that just doesn't stop asking questions? No, I've had more that 
examiners who have really long questions. <laughs> so I, I, I was waiting for the question to end and I kept yeah, waiting I and it kept going. So that was interesting because I didn't know when to start answering. And like by the time, by the time they finished the question, you uh, you even forgot what it was about. Yeah, and I also didn't want to interrupt them because that's rude. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't necessarily have someone that kept asking over and over, but I did have a few long ones that kind of incorporated two or three questions at once, and then you kind of forget what the initial one was, or where where that started, and then it gets all confusing. Yeah, <laughs> but I mean, the good thing is that often they also forget what question they yeah. initially asked. So, so all goes, all goes well <laughs> by the end of it. Yeah. All right, well, second item on the checklist, the, the PowerPoint presentation that, that doesn't work. That, <laughs> <laughs> have you had this has happened to you? Not quite that, okay. but uh, I had a technical glitch because of, I, because of which I had to borrow someone else's laptop and that laptop happened to be in Japanese. Uh, so I, I don't know Japanese, so that was interesting. But it worked. I didn't, I didn't press any buttons, so that I didn't have to try to read Japanese. Okay, so. okay. Well, you could have learned Japanese in those twenty minutes before the presentation. <laughs> for sure, yeah. I mean, how dare you not try? Not that. try, yeah. <laughs> um, for me, I mean, I came prepared. I had two computers with. A bunch of different HDMI ports to USB-C or to normal USB, uh, USB-A, and two USB keys with the presentation in case there was a computer there. And so, backed up on the net network. And backed cloud. up on Dropbox, oh, wow. obviously. The real, the real so, deal. So I was like, <laughs> nothing's gonna go wrong. And I mean, I just plugged in the computer; everything worked fine. Yeah. But you know, just be prepared. For just sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, other other thing, unsolicited advice disguised as a question. <laughs> For me, the, the actually the, the the person who said that said it in advance. Said, I have a couple of questions that are actually maybe a bit more unsolicited advice, so that was okay. Yeah, I had a lot of suggestions. There were lots and lots of suggestions. Some of them were actually very good, mm -hmm. and uh, there's also there are good suggestions that cannot be implemented. You know, because right. you've already come too far down this path, so you can't go back yeah. and change it. Uh, there are other good suggestions that are easy to implement and definitely worth doing. So I really appreciated those. And then there are some just really vague things where I wasn't <laughs> sure if it was more of a question about background knowledge or an actual thing that I should try to do. But And you don't know what to answer, answer right? In yeah. these situations. I said, I, I said at the end, I will try to incorporate <laughs> some of your suggestions. <laughs> perfect uh, perfect <laughs> thing to say. I mean, some of them are pretty out there. And it's like... Um, I mean, we, we really don't work on like any molecular and like cell culture. Mm -hmm. And you always have those questions like, yeah, you could do this and do that. And it's like, this is completely out of our scope. Yeah, yeah. So, so, I mean, it's great. If you want to do it, you're welcome <laughs> to join and do it yourself. Yeah. But, did, you, did you have that question that you could not answer? Um, did you reach a point where you were just... Uh, uh, well, I guess for me it happened once or twice. I think I was more taken by surprise. Okay, one of the the committee member and like the first question he asked was like, "Okay, so what's the link with insulin?" 
and it's somewhat of a related field, but that's really not something I work on. Um, I know he's an expert on it, but see, that's the thing—you have to know your committee members. Yeah, you I, have to I know what they're I going knew, to ask. I knew he was going <laughs> to ask, but it was a really specific thing, and I was really not expecting that to be like the first thing that comes out of his mouth. So, so I was a bit taken by surprise by that, and um, then I gave an answer. I don't know if he bought it, but. Uh, <laughs> I think in my case, there were definitely a few instances where the examiner had something in mind that they wanted me to say. Yeah. Like they had a very specific answer that they wanted. Right. And, you know, I, I, they asked the question, I gave an answer. They're like, no, 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 but this thing. It's like, then I gave another answer. Yes, that's fine. But this thing is like, oh, okay. So that's what you're hinting at. That's what you wanted to say. And then, it was, and then they were satisfied with that. But yeah, I mean, there were things that I hadn't looked into that they asked about, and I was like, "Well, I—that's a valid point. I haven't looked into that." Yeah, yeah. I guess that's, that's a good answer to to take. Uh, yeah, I had also this, like one one question. I really, I think I spent a very awkward fifteen seconds of <laughs> not knowing. I was trying to think of something to answer, and at the same time, debating whether or not I should just say. Well, uh, I don't know. Next question, sort of. And uh, in the end, I I just like mumbled something, and I could see I could see my prof like <laughs> looking at me and be like, and he had he had the answer, and he told me actually later that that's what I should have said. And yeah, I no, no editing out this time. The common experience that everybody has is just looking at their supervisor's face, trying to <laughs> convey the answers. I just want to mime it to you. Just read my leap, read my lips. Well, I don't know about you, but for me, during the whole presentation, like I was kind of trying to judge how they were responding, mm -hmm. and the only answer I could get from their face were just completely blank. I mean, and there was one just, like of... no expression. Yeah, I was there. I was there for uh, for Tal's uh, presentation, and there was just one guy who just I thought he was dead. Because he really just did not move. And then when he moved, I almost... Uh, <laughs> Fell out like, of your chair. Yes, yeah, it was crazy. <laughs> he was just like sitting like sitting down. One one eye like half half closed. I guess he was looking down at his uh, paper or whatever. But I was like, oh man, this guy is either asleep or he <laughs> just had a stroke. It's hard when you're not getting any feedback on whether they're like understanding what you're saying or appreciating it yeah. or just like completely lost mm. um, or judging you silently yeah <laughs> have you tried have you tried the joking during your presentation no I did it uh, compulsively to uh, sort of to relieve the pressure and it it was like really bad I, th I said something <laughs> like uh, or like so this is my plan for the summer if I don't get ejected by then or something like I, that I mean I was there. I thought it was funny. Yeah, like everyone laughed. I, I think uh, I think one one of the committee members just was like, "Okay, that's that's enough." <laughs> I just and it really just came out uh, as a you know. That's not the worst way to express your anxiety. You know, some people yeah. talk really fast. <laughs> some people like stammer a lot. So if you're just cracking jokes, that's, that's <laughs> I guess pretty it's good. Better, yeah, yeah. Make, made me look more relaxed than I was. I guess. <laughs> In terms of laughing. Throughout my entire presentation, throughout the entire questioning session, they they were fine. They were normal. Nobody was laughing. 
But then, as soon as I left the room for them to discuss, they burst out in laughter. And I don't know why. <laughs> and one of my friends said they did the same thing to him for his kind of exam. So I don't know. Yeah. Maybe they're just laughing at the students after they leave. Who yeah, knows? or maybe, or maybe it's like you know they're still so focused for so long, and then, and also I guess a lot of people they know each other, right? So it's they like do, they they're do. back together as yeah. friends. Uh, still, like what, what, what could you be laughing about? Haha, ha, let's fail them. That'll yeah, be, it could be, that. be fun. <laughs> I'm sure there's always one guy that always makes the joke, okay, well, gonna fail your student. And then, and then they <laughs> laugh. So fun. <laughs> all in all, all that matters is that we have passed <laughs> and we're now en route for new adventures. New, I guess, continuation of, of the, the same, same adventure. adventure. Yeah. <laughs> Three more years of the same, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Although, well, I mean, you never know where research takes you. Wise words. Oh, maybe I'll invite you back uh, in three years so we can do the same thing about. Uh, yeah, you should do this after our uh, PhD seminar. I oh, a true seminar. You know, I don't even know what this is supposed to be about. I'm. I need to to read uh, about it. Let's figure this out. In like two years down the road, future me. Yeah. Words of wisdom. All right. So uh, I think we're uh, we're touching the end of it. Thank you, guys. Um, I forgot to do it last episode, so let's make it this episode. Is there anything that you want to shout out? Uh, I don't know, a per- an event that is in- coming soon, uh, a paper of you or of a friend, or s- whatever, a restaurant. I don't know. <laughs> it's just something that you want to, you know, bring to the knowledge of the millions of people listening to this podcast. <laughs> Just summer count as an event? The season of summer? I want to do a shout out for summer. All right, shout out for the summer. Because it you is. know it's been winter for so long. <laughs> Fair that enough. sun coming out is an event. That is very I just true. want to do a shout out. Make use of the sun. Mm. Everybody sitting in the darkness, go out. True. If this is your first, if you just arrived in Montreal and you arrived in September and all you've known is the darkness, just. Don't quit already. Summer is on its way. <laughs> All right. Well, shout out to the summer then. <laughs> and cheers to that. So, well, thank you guys for, for coming. Well, thank uh, you. Thanks for talking. having us. It was a very nice experience having some fellow neuroscientists. <laughs> uh, and if you want to be like them, of course, you can uh, yourself participate if you're a research student. Um, or if you're a postdoc, I really want to do a special episode on postdocs that they could give advice to students. So if you're a postdoc and listening, please, uh, there's a link on the website that gives you to a form. You can put your name and your field of study and what you want to talk about. It would be awesome. So yeah, and on a rate on iTunes, subscribe, blah, 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 all of that stuff, share on social media. And thank you very much. This was too long of an outro. I did it out somehow. Well, thank you so much. Goodbye.